Welcome to the Brown Journal of World Affairs podcast. My name is Eric Brown, and I am an associate editor for the Brown Journal of World Affairs, a biannual journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. The podcast seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues related to the content of upcoming and previous issues of the journal via a series of interviews of distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, University of Sydney Professor Emeritus Graham Gill. Professor Gill has maintained an acclaimed career of academic roles, focusing on political transformations and post-Soviet authoritarianism. He has been a member of the University of Sydney faculty since 1981, and also holds several visiting positions across the world. From 2010 to 2015, Professor Gill was the president of the International Council for Central and East European Studies. Over his career, Professor Gill has also published multiple books, most recently being Collective Leadership in Soviet Politics and Building an Authoritarian Polity. More recently, he has been researching elite politics and authoritarian political systems, with an especial focus on the relationships between dominant leaders and other members of the ruling elite. Professor Gill, thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to begin quickly with the topic that has the world's attention, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Early this morning, Russian President Vladimir Putin authorized a special military operation against Ukraine which, as we now know, is really a full-fledged invasion. To many in the West, particularly the Biden administration, which has been extraordinarily vocal in calling out Russian strategy, this is to be expected. How is the crisis and its escalation being viewed in Australia? Well, the view in Australia is very much the same as it is uh, throughout most of the rest of the world. Everyone who is making public statements uh, condemning the, uh, the Russian invasion, except, of course, for the, uh, the Russian embassy, which has come out in... Um, in uh, criticism of the measures that the Australian government has taken. Australian government has imposed a series of sanctions on individuals and banks, very similar to the first first raft of sanctions that were undertaken by the Biden administration. So by and large, the public discussion here is uh, is condemnatory of the Russian action. Considerable, sorry, there's there's also a considerable Ukrainian population here who have been very uh, very vocal in uh, in trying to gather support for uh, for Ukraine even before the um, the actual invasion took place. And now to focus on you, you have a storied academic career in post-Soviet politics. What sparked your interest in Russian and Soviet politics, as well as authoritarianism and democratization? How have your interests evolved or changed in relation to Russia's own post-Soviet development? Okay, that's a complicated question. How did I become interested in it? I think the I think the answer to that is that when I was a when I when I was a kid uh, growing up in uh, in Melbourne, um, I can remember reading in the newspapers. I suppose I must have only been I don't know ten or something like that. No, no, I must have been older than that. Fifteen. Uh, I can remember reading in newspapers about the overthrow of Khrushchev in 1964, and uh, I mean this obviously struck a chord because I can still remember it sort of so many years, uh, so many years after. And that made me interested in this country that uh, at that stage was sort of largely unknown because very few people would visit it. I mean, international tourism then wasn't what it is now. And to get into the Soviet Union was difficult. And once you got in there, there were all sorts of controls on. So not many people went. So it seemed to be this big place that was very different to where I lived and that was pretty strange. And then when I went to university, I um, I did a couple of courses on uh, Soviet politics, Russian history, this sort of thing. And that that further uh, fueled my interest. So I um, 
So I then began to study the language. And when I finished undergraduate work, I, I did a master's degree by research, which here involved writing a, a, a thesis, dissertation. I think it was about 40 or 50,000 words. It was meant to be mine. It was about double that. Uh, and I had to find a subject to do it on. So I decided to do it on um, the Soviet Union. It was actually a comparison of Soviet Union and China. And that then really got me into studying um, Soviet Union and Russia, and it sort of it sort of went on from there. I mean, once you get once you get into it, once you get into a particular field, it takes something to get you out of it. And when I was when I did my PhD, I finished PhD in seventy five. So I began a professional scholarly career during the Brezhnev years. And the Brezhnev years were sort of boring as anything by and large because nothing seemed to be happening, but I stuck, I stuck with it, and then along came Gorbachev, when everything became became new again, if you like, and it was all was all renewed. So, so there was really no re, no real reason to get out of uh, out of Soviet studies at that stage because things just seemed to be so interesting. But then, of course, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it created a crisis for uh, for many people like me because because the way in which the study of the Soviet Union had developed, principally through the US, was through mainly through the development of area studies centres, so that there were a lot of area studies people who were, were produced. Now, I'd, I'd, done, I'd come to... Uh, so, so the people who did Soviet studies through the area studies uh, route knew a lot about the Soviet Union, not about anything much outside that, but also the Soviet system was a particular one, so that they knew the way that system worked, but didn't give them an, a, an easy lead into other systems. I'd come at it through the study of political science, so I had a disciplinary background. So when the Soviet Union fell, there was a real, a real issue for many people about what do you, you know, what do you do now? Do you, uh, do you, pardon me, simply become a historian and continue to focus on the Soviet Union, or do you try to go to the post-Soviet area, or do you do something, something completely different? And all three of those, all three of those paths, people adopted. I mean, a very prominent Soviet scholar in the U.S. then became a specialist on American politics. Go figure! I mean, he had to find something to do, and this is this is where he went. So I, because I had the political science background, I could then go into into the Russian field, and so that's what I, so that's what I did. And of course, the the collapse of the Soviet Union led to. Uh, or involved these issues of democratization about when you get regime change, when does democratization come about? When does it uh, when does it falter? What's needed to to create a successful democracy and so forth? So my sort of country of origin, country of focus, led me into this area of democratization, and I mean I argued from very early on in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union that that. The, that democracy such as it existed in Russia was incredibly fragile. And therefore, that also led me into this study of authoritarian, of authoritarian politics. So there is a sort of a connection between everything I've, everything I've done. It might, might not be at first sight sort of evident, but at least I think there's a connection. I suppose I have to, don't I, though? So there you go. Well, we originally reached out to you to contribute to the dissolution of the Soviet Union section in the recently published edition of the journal. Yeah. So what developments yeah. have led Russia from where it was in 1991 to where it is today? 
what what developments have led from 1991 to now? Well, when 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 Boris Yeltsin uh, came to power in 1991 in an independent in an independent Russia at the end of 1991-1992-in-an-independent-Russia-he-set-up-he-set-up-institutions-that-were-broadly-democratic-institutions-that-were-broadly-democratic-he-set-up-a-parliament-and-and-elections-and- despite the problems with his regime, including the fiddling of the elections and manipulation, this sort of thing, by and large, he maintained, he maintained the Russian system on a, on a path that, was, that could be argued was democratic, but which had strong authoritarian overtones to it. Um, in part, this was because of the power of the presidency, but it was also because Yeltsin refused to, to countenance the development of broadly based political parties. So that the whole political party sector tended to be taken over by parties that were critical of um, of the president, and and in the economic sphere there was there was broad scale corruption and the uh, the development of a system whereby the people who were closest to the president actually got access to untold wealth and resources and so forth. So that that there was there's a very strong element of corruption and there were very strong anti-democratic forces within the political system. Now, they, those forces did not dominate, if you like, until after Putin came to power, because Putin was much less concerned to, uh, to maintain a democratic, a democratic, I was going to say facade, but that's probably a little bit harsh. He was, he was, he was less concerned in the early 2000s to keep those democratic elements and to build on them, and he was rather more concerned to, to centralise control. And one of the reasons for that might have been that he uh, he personally wanted to centralise control and hold power himself, but also the whole country looked as though it was in danger of falling apart at the end of the 1990s. There were regional movements, there were breakaways, breakaway in Chechnya. The lot of the populace had fallen because of the, the, the level of the, um, of the depression that Russia experienced during the 1990s. So there was really a strong argument for, for strong central control. And he interpreted strong central control as meaning authoritarian control. And so he built a political system along those lines. But as I say, it did have its roots in the Yeltsin period. In your 2015 book, Building an Authoritarian Polity, you note that the more authoritarian aspects of Russian culture and tradition provided a favorable environment within which authoritarian rule could prosper. What exactly are these aspects of Russian culture and tradition, and have they changed at all since the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, a lot of people have argued that, that Russian culture is uh, perhaps not uniquely, but particularly characterized by an authoritarian strand in it. There is there is always this, this drive for the strong leader, the belief that the country's welfare and the welfare of individuals was dependent upon there being a powerful, a powerful leader. So that in Tsarist times, for example, when um, when things were going badly, people often did not did not blame the Tsar. They blamed the bureaucrats in between. So that there was this belief that that the strong leader is, the, is the, the, the thing which really carries us forward and which is best for the good of all. So that was one element. There is also a very strong collectivist or communal element in the sense that there's a, there was a very strong sense of community. And when you have a strong sense of community, it, it, it usually, or it, it often 
counteracts the development of, of sense of individualism and of individual rights. So that the, the propensity to, to subordinate individual rights to the collective welfare was quite strongly developed in, in Russian society. There was, also, there was also, right up into the Soviet period, a very weak development of civil society in Russia. When the Bolshevik Revolution came about in 1917, something like 90% of the population were peasants who lived in the villages. So, so, and the cities, the major cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg, as it was then too, did have a sort of a nascent, a small civil society, but it was, it was incredibly weak compared with the state. So all of these elements are elements which it's often seen don't contribute very well to the construction of a democratic political system. But one thing to say is that that culture, culture, what culture does and what this sort of background does is that it may limit choices, but it doesn't determine the course that you're going. Because if you look at every culture, they all, at some stage or other, had this sort of combination of things, particularly the strong, the strong leader. You know, people look at people look at the US and they look at, at Britain and they say their culture was sort of democratic. Well, it wasn't. Their culture, their their political culture was basically liberal. And it only became democratic, it enabled democratic development in the in the 19th century. So, so these cultural aspects were significant, I think, in helping to shape the political actors' views of what was an acceptable or advisable course of development. So they helped to shape those decisions, they didn't determine them. And you hinted at some of these earlier, but I was wondering how have events from the last three decades, such as the Chechen wars, increased terrorist activity, challenges from the West and so on, helped strengthen central control in Moscow? And on the contrary, have any notable events provided obstacles for authoritarian rule in Russia? Yeah, well, all of those things. I mean, the Chechen, the Chechen, the Chechen wars and the terrorist um, attacks in Russia, whether whether real terrorist attacks or false flag operations, and there's some suggestion that some of them were 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 not terrorist actions at all. But all of these all of these fed into this view that we need a strong person to um, uh, to prevent the country from falling apart, to prevent things from going down the wrong path, to prevent the sort of disunity that we had before. And, and the same goes with the, um, with the, the relationship with the, the West. I mean, Putin's, Putin's argument has been consistently, I mean, lots of things about what he said has changed, but consistently what he said is that, that Russia needs to be a powerful, a powerful country in order to look after its interests under Yeltsin, he argued, and, and he was accurate, I think, by and large. Under Yeltsin, Russia was generally um, complacent for the West. It generally went along with uh, with most lines of Western of Western policy, because at that stage there was this belief that Russia was going to be welcomed into into the West as a full as a full partner. That that expectation had disappeared early by the well. Soon after, soon after uh, 9-11, that expectation disappeared and Putin, Putin came to the conclusion that, that only a powerful Russia would be able to serve its interests and that the West was, uh, was, was a political force that was out, if not to do down Russia, which is what he thinks now, at least at that stage, not to act in Russia's interests. So a powerful centralised state was seen as being necessary. Now, there have been counter-developments. I mean, a civil society has developed and become much more 
much more robust. That's not to say it isn't very robust, but it's much more robust than it was. You have had demonstrations in the streets. I mean, the big demonstrations in 2011-12 in Moscow, following on from um, about fraud in the elections, were evidence that, 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 that this sort of popular mobilisation can occur. But it's not immediately clear that the strength of that sort of mobilisation is going to be sufficient to bring about change within the system, at least while Putin is there. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the light of the invasion of Ukraine, because there have already been some demonstrations that have been broken up in the big cities. And if that was, if that was to grow, it would be really interesting to see how, how it would interact with both the Russian troops on the ground and with the, the people around Putin. So, yeah, so there are some things there that, that, that can possibly lead to hope for a more democratic outcome, but that's not going to come about until, um, until Putin leaves. Also in building an authoritarian polity, you write that the drive of the post-Soviet political elite to build an authoritarian system was the central and most important factor to the emergence of authoritarian rule in Russia. Now, with the clear and established authoritarian regime in Moscow, what role does the political elite play in Russian politics? Well, the political elite benefits from the system that's been established. I mean, there, there are you can say that there are essentially two wings to the elite, the political and the economic. The economic, the economic section of the elite profits from the relationship that it has with the, uh, with the current power structures and its inter- Interrelationship with the state, its ability to uh, their ability to to feed off the state and to rent seek from the state. The political elite gains because they get the political power that they want, and through that political power, they get economic resources, economic wealth, and all of the sorts of things that uh, political elites everywhere have always been able to gain. And that is, you know, much better standard of life than everybody else, more wealth, um, and so forth. So, so the elite that 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 was instrumental in building the system that. Putin currently heads is still uh, is still there and is benefiting from that system. I mean, the West the West has tried to to impose sanctions upon individuals, both just in the last few days, but also in 2014 after the seizure of Crimea, to put pressure in the belief that by squeezing these particular individuals and squeezing their access to wealth, that they will then put pressure on Putin. Not immediately clear that that uh, that that does happen, uh, but again, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if there is if there is this pressure on the elite, and if there is some bubbling up of of uh, mass opposition to the war in Ukraine. This is the most dangerous time for a uh, for an authoritarian regime. If what you get is mass dissatisfaction and the elite split, part of that elite then joins. The mass, what you've got is the situation that can lead clearly to the overthrow of the regime. And especially in the context of Putin's decision to invade, who has more control over the other, Putin or Russia's elites? Putin. Putin. I mean, the, the, when Putin, first, when, when under Yeltsin, it was widely seen that uh, Yeltsin was sick and uh, for a long part of his time, particularly during his second, his second term, he was sick and he was away from the office, and it was widely seen that the, the economic elites, the so-called oligarch, had their way and could get almost anything they wanted. Soon after Putin came to power, about 2002, I think it was, he called, uh, he called the leading oligarchs in and he, and he said, he didn't use these words, but this is what he said, all right, I've got a deal for you. You can pay your taxes, you can stay out of politics, 
and you can put money into philanthropic activities. And if you do those three things, we won't revisit the privatisations of the 1990s. In other words, if you do those three things, I won't take your property off you. And the Yeltsin-era oligarchs, most of them accepted that. Two didn't. One finished up in jail. Three didn't. One finished up in jail. The other two uh, uh, went abroad. One's still living in Israel. The other one died in London about 10 years ago. So the Yeltsin-era oligarchs accepted that deal. But then what Putin did over time was to bring in other oligarchs, allow other people into take over a lot of the economic uh, wealth of the country. And they're still there, but their wealth and their position depends upon him. So he's the one who wields the he's the one who wields the stick, basically. You've also written a number of articles on the role of symbols in the Soviet political system. In 2019, a co-edited book of yours, Symbolism and Politics, was published, which included a chapter written by you on political symbols, regime change in Russia. Can you speak more to the dilemma that the post-communist authorities faced in dealing with Soviet symbolic discourse? Well, the problem the problem for uh, for the post-Soviet leadership, in part was that one of the characteristics of the Soviet Union was that it generated a whole, what I've called a meta-narrative of discourse. In other words, a whole set of language, a whole set of, uh, of words, concepts, and a language, which meant certain things. I mean, the easiest, the easiest thing which everyone knows about is comrade. Comrade was the general form of, of address. Well, what that meta-narrative did was to, was to structure people's expectations about how to understand the world and about how to interrelate with one another. Once the Soviet Union had disappeared, many of those symbols were no longer relevant. I mean, the only people who refer in Russia now to each other as comrades, well, well they did, I don't know whether they still do, I assume they do, are the members of the Communist Party. So as a form of address, that's dropped away. Similarly, a lot of the Soviet symbols have gone. So the flag has gone. The national anthem, well, one of the Soviet national anthems has been brought back and given new words, but it's not the old Soviet national anthem. You know, a lot of the statues have been taken down. A lot of the plaques on buildings referring to the communist period have been taken down. And this was an attempt to, to transcend the Soviet period. The problem is, of course, that the Soviet period is such a central part of Russian history over the last hundred years. So you can't simply wipe it away. Can't you can't just say it didn't exist. You've got to you've got to deal with it in some way. I mean Putin um Yeltsin Yeltsin simply virtually said all of the communist period was bad. You know, we're just going to build a complete new democracy and blah blah blah. Putin has been more nuanced than that. He he doesn't say that the whole thing is bad. He says that there are positive that there were positive aspects of it. But he says that the cost of, the, of those positive aspects was far too great. So, and he's criticised Stalin and Stalin's crimes. But at the same time, he's supported some aspects that, that involve a revival of Stalin and the, the image of Stalin. So Putin, Putin, I think, is conflicted in the way that a lot of, of Russian citizens are conflicted about the, about the USSR because there were things which for the ordinary person in the street were positive. I mean, there was free health care. It wasn't very good, but there was free health care. Housing was, uh, was uh, either free or very cheap. Food was very cheap. Transport was very cheap. There was a sense of community. And when the Soviet Union fell, all of those things, all of those things changed. So that there is now in, in Russia a very strong sense of nostalgia 
for the Soviet Union, but people often say that it's nostalgia, that the, that the strongest sense of nostalgia is among those who didn't live in the USSR. Those who lived in it and experienced the last 10, 15 years when things were falling apart don't have that, don't have that good, good image of it. Putin has said, you know, it's often quoted, Putin said that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. And he did say that, but, but, but he said it in the context of the, the consequences for individuals, the consequences for Russian people at that time. Because it's, it's when he's talking about the consequences of the, of the 1990s and the collapse of the economy. Putin has also said that, that anyone, anyone who doesn't look back fondly on the USSR doesn't have a heart. But anybody who wants to recreate the USSR doesn't have a head. So in a sense, that's, that sort of ambiguity sums up a lot of people's views of the Soviet Union. And that's what makes it hard to deal with the, the Soviet symbols of the past. Because they do still evoke among many people a, a, a positive reaction. To conclude, I thought it could be helpful to look to the future after reflecting so much on Russia's recent past. In 2020, a number of constitutional changes were improved in Russia, including allowing Putin to run again for two more six-year presidential terms or to remain in power until yeah. 2036. Do you envision this yeah. occurring, a Russia over the next 12 years led by Putin consolidating even more power than he currently possesses? Or how realistic is it that a figure like Alexei Navalny, for example, poses a significant challenge to Putin? I don't, I don't think he'll still be there in 2036. I think one of the reasons for introducing the, uh, the amendments when he did was to ensure that he was not a lame duck president. I mean, if he had to step down in 2024, he would by now be being seen by other power wielders within Russia as a lame duck president, and this would have been dangerous for him. That doesn't mean he's not going to stand again in 2024, but I, I don't think he'll be there in 20, 30, uh, 2036. I mean, one thing to bear in mind is he's 69. And the, um, I think the life expectancy of Russian males is now about that, might be the early 70s. So in a sense, you know, he's not very old by Western standards, but he is a bit old by um, Russian standards. It's quite clear over the last, been quite clear over the last few years that his, uh, his willingness, if you like, to get involved in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of, uh, of governing has waned. He's bored with some aspects of it. So all of these things seem to suggest that, that he might stand in 2024, but he won't be there, uh, he won't stand again in, in 2030. And as I say, I think it was mainly a, 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 an issue of, um, of um, stopping himself from being a lame duck president. And anyway, I mean, what he, what he could do is to um, stand in 2024 and then resign way through, which would give him the opportunity virtually of choosing his successor in the same way that, um, that Yeltsin chose him. And finally, more broadly, is there anything else you would like to know on the present and future of Russian politics? Do you have hope for democracy to take greater root in Russian society? The floor, the floor is yours. Well, we all hope, we all hope for these things, it's, but it's very it's very difficult to establish a democratic a democratic regime, and we've seen that in the in the um, the what's happened over the last twenty years, where you know if you if you if you look at if you look at two thousand people were saying about uh, democracy being the wave of the future and all of this sort of stuff, you know there was Fukuyama, the end of history, and all that, and that's been proved to be wrong. 
and even though many of those countries that were seen to be on the path to democracy are now seen not to be. So it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult thing to actually construct a stable democratic system. So one hopes that that Russia is going to be able to achieve it, but those hopes are, I'm afraid, uh, laced with a good bit of um, a good bit of pessimism. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast, hosted by the Brown Journal of World Affairs. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Professor Gill for the opportunity to speak with him. Be sure to check out Professor Gill's books, Building an Authoritarian Polity and Symbolism and Regime Change, which can be found on Amazon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.